we forget that, that the whole essence of our storytelling as human beings from the beginning of human beings is understanding the complexity even of heroes. Like for example, we presume today, we lament that there are no heroes because we presume that a hero is perfect. When in fact the Greeks have been telling us for centuries that millennia that a hero isn't perfect. A hero is having a negotiation, sometimes a war, with their strengths and their weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strengths. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really pleased that my first return guest since I began this podcast is going to be Ken Burns because he has a new film which is co-directed by his daughter Sarah Burns and David McMahon with a four-part eight-hour series devoted to the life of Muhammad Ali from cradle to grave and Burns stresses this is in no way the definitive portrait of Ali that can't really be done and he wouldn't want it to be done we're talking about a character that is just infinitely too complex multifaceted there are too many sides, too many contradictions for anybody ever to do a definitive version. Maybe we can't do it with anybody, but <laughs> we certainly can't do it with Muhammad Ali. From uh, the touchstones of this life, Emmett Till affecting the psyche of Ali, Malcolm X, the, their friendship, the betrayal that Ali inflicted on his best friend when Elijah Muhammad and that conflict, he was forced to choose. Vietnam War, you know all the basic touchstones, but um, this is a film that explores those with tremendous nuance, great archival, wonderful voices chiming in. It's a wonderful film, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ken Burns, this week's guest on Tourist Information. I just wonder... What in particular inspired this eight-hour, four-part undertaking about such a well-documented figure? We had been working with Jonathan Eig, a recent biographer of Muhammad Ali. He had been very helpful to us in our film, our 2011 film on Prohibition, and then again in our film on Jackie Robinson. And bef way before the Jackie Robinson film came out, um, he had just thrown out to Sarah Burns, my oldest daughter, and David McMahon, we'd collaborated together on the Central Park Five and Jackie Robinson, about Muhammad Ali, and they went, wow, and they came to me, and I said, wow, of course. And so, it, you know, you never, with our long attenuated process, you never um, imagine that it, that it comes out at a particular moment because you're trying to work so hard, particularly with something as complicated and 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 as comprehensive as as we, the three of us, were trying to be in this, and Sarah and Dave wrote the script, and additionally, um, but you always have that confidence that when you finish, you lift up and you realize how pertinent it is. This is obviously the greatest athlete of the 20th century, and I'm happy to have a bar stool argument about the greatest athlete of all times. Um, he's obviously intersected with all the most important issues of the last half 
of the 20th century with the idea of athletics and the role of athletics in society about race, obviously, about faith, about religion, about <laughs> politics, about war. And then as we delve into the personal life, there's lots of things about faithfulness and, and relationships and family uh, that get taken in. And uh, this is a hero's spiritual journey. And it's so interesting that something that we began, we said yes to in 2013, we began in 2014, comes out at this moment. And it seems so pertinent as if he's talking to us. And, you know, he's born in the early 40s in segregated Jim Crow, Louisville, Kentucky. It is both a positive and a negative. You know, he made some lemonade out of it in addition to suffering all of those things. Uh, it was nurturing the middle-class black family he grew up in in the West End. It was safe, um, not without its dangers and perils. Uh, and he died not that long ago, five years ago, uh, just outside Phoenix and from the ravages of Parkinson's disease, but he died the most beloved person on his planet. And there's really, you know, no very few other people who can who can actually say that. So he's, I didn't realize how deep we'd get. I didn't realize how much I would love him, how much love he was interested in spreading. I didn't get, I didn't realize that we'd be able to get inside so many of the important boxing matches. I assume that, you know, look, there's lots of, doc I should have started off and said this, there are wonderful, many wonderful documentaries on Muhammad Ali that take a particular fight or a couple of years or a few fights or his fight with the United States government over the Vietnam War. But we wanted to do something comprehensive, a kind of soup to nuts. And so I, I was just thrilled to be able to have our secret weapon of Michael Bent to Im, Im, embed him in every single one of the important fights. That's the only time he appears except at the very end where he's outside a fight reacting to the news of his death uh, so poignantly. And he helps us understand not just the strategy and tactics for those of us who might not be boxing fans, but the psychology the personalities, the hearts, the wills, um, what's happening uh, in the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics of a fight in such an interesting way because he can appreciate why uh, Muhammad Ali was so sui generis and yet also having to adapt over time as he gets older uh, with the strategies that, that he's employing. And so I'm happy that we, you know, the Nation of Islam is a huge thing. It isn't a mention, it, it's a deep dive, and that we're aware from his birth of the family dynamics, including his parents and his brother and his four wives and his, his children. So, you know, it was exciting to do because he's such a compelling figure. Mm. How much did Emmett Till inform the psyche of Muhammad Ali? I, I think it's huge. Uh, we did not put that in by accident. Uh, just imagine, he's about the same age as Emmett Till. Emmett Till, as everyone knows, was um, sort of kidnapped and tortured and brutally murdered. And his mutilated body had an open casket. His mother had the bravery to, to, to leave an open casket to show literally the scars uh, of racism. And, and it photographs were taken they were printed in jet magazine everyone in the black community saw it it was devastating and you can't put something into his mind but it must have been powerful his father was a frustrated race man who felt that the color of his skin had impeded him from being the artist the painter that he wanted to be and he ended up being a sign painter and uh, there was a rage there his mother had a great 
uh, generosity of spirit, which he also took. I, I think he was aware of the, all of the, the centuries of oppression that had taken place, but Emmett Till must have been just a, a terrifying exclamation point in the middle of a boyhood growing up, looking through chain lit fang, a fence at amusement parks that white kids could visit, but he could not. Um, seeing the run-ins uh, that his dad, who was a drinker and a womanizer, had with the police. Um, you know, there's it's it's a complicated dynamic, but it's Louisville also that that provides him with his you know his bike is stolen and he goes down to find a cop and the cop is teaching black and white kids how to box and you know the bell goes off. <laughs> um, with all of the contradictions of such a complex character with Ali, um, it's. I think really unimaginable for a lot of people today to remember just how divisive he was in his time. And yet, as you say, he probably did die the most beloved person on earth. How is that possible? And why do you think that that happened? Well, I, I think we live in a media culture which is so conditioned now to um, devolve everything to a kind of binary on-off, good-bad, yes-no, black-white. And so we, we forget that, that the whole essence of our storytelling as human beings from the beginning of human beings is understanding the complexity even of heroes. Like for example, we presume today, we lament that there are no heroes because we presume that a hero is perfect. When in fact the Greeks have been telling us for centuries that millennia that a hero isn't perfect. A hero is having a negotiation, sometimes a war, with their strengths and their weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strengths. And so I think that you do have to take in the fact that, that things change and people evolve and the hero's journey, as this one certainly is, coming back against obstacles and overcoming obstacles uh, to begin with, starting with the color of his skin, uh, all of the flaws that he had that he was aware of that our film makes painfully clear, I think, from his, his womanizing and infidelity to his uh, tr horrific treatment of Joe Frazier and other opponents to his abandonment of Malcolm X, which may be more uh, understandable given the context of the violence of the Nation of Islam and the fact that they assassinated Malcolm X, but uh, you know, I, I can't read too much in it, but it's a, it's a real step. You know, he comes out of uh, the Rome Olympics of a new fresh face, kind of exciting, um, loud, well-spoken, extremely interesting personality, he just exudes a kind of confidence. And then by the time he's fighting Liston, um, people are beginning to say, well, he's not acting the way uh, an athlete could act. He's bragging. He's predicting which round the opponents are going to fall in. He's reciting poetry. Somebody's got to shut him up. And particularly, he's not behaving the way people thought a black athlete should. So the first step up of division takes place. Then after he defeats, improbably defeats Liston in one of the great fights of all times, um, he then allows the world to know that he has been drawn to and is attending as a member of the Nation of Islam, uh, which is not, you know, Islamic. It's an American cult. It's a, you know, it's a hybrid. It's, it's separatist and it, it flies in the face of what's going on in the civil rights movement and it's already been made a kind of boogeyman in the mainstream media. Mike Wallace does a piece on it in which, you know, it, they're, they're talking about it as a hate group back in the late 50s and, and early 60s. And so that's sort of strike two. Strike three is the fact that he, because of his faith, 
refuses induction into the United States Army when he's reclassified as not qualified for Vietnam, not qualified for the draft, but then requalified 1A. And even though he'd have a cushy USO kind of, you know, meet and greet stuff, he, his faith is this. But unfortunately, we're in highly politicized times, as we are now, and, and he's a black man. And so that's not taken as an act of faith. It's taken as a political gesture, and it's a big middle finger uh, to a lot of people. And so that's strike three, and his license have already been revoked in some places, and he is convicted of draft evasion, and so he's hugely divisive. But then circumstances change, and he comes back. He loses in a fight to Joe Frazier, but he, he's, he shows a kind of uh, grit and a kind of determination. And he seems by that time, 71, to be right about Vietnam, that maybe most of the country had gotten it wrong. Um, and he's also been speaking all that time about an empowerment of black people, a, a new way of understanding that, that all of this stuff is I'm pretty as a girl and I'm beautiful is also handing everybody else their own sense of self-worth, kind of the way Jesse Jackson's mantra, you know, I am somebody has become you know, repeated and over. This is Muhammad Ali is is doing that. And so, you know, then and then when he reclaims the championship, it's just great. And things begin to dissolve away, uh, even as his career uh, has its ups and downs and he retires. You know, it culminates 25 years ago this summer with him lighting the torch uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and there in the full throes of Parkinson's shaking, he takes the torch. It was a complete secret to everybody um, from Janet Evans to light it. And and it's one of those moments where I think a lot of that division evaporates for most people. I'm sure there's some unreconstructed brethren out there that still can't forgive him. But, you know, everybody loved him. And the important thing is when he'd do something in the United States, the entire sports world would stop. We did something when he went to visit Pakistan or some other country, the entire country would stop. And that's where, you know, billions, and that's not an exaggeration, billions with a B adored him, named their kids Muhammad Ali Clay, because so many people were already named Muhammad Ali in the Muslim world. And he begins to, in his faith, and this is, this is a story, this is four episodes in which it's a journey of faith, in which the kind of at times corrupt and and kind of selective, almost P.T. Barnumish aspects of the separatist. Really, you know, his faith grows into a, something that begins to resemble mainstream Islam, as as Malcolm X was gravitating towards. And with the death of Elijah Muhammad and his son Wallace taking over, also expands it and makes it less uh, of that. And 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 some of the corruption uh, disappears at least for a while. Um, so it's, to me, it's just an amazing story that you, you kind of can't get enough of. And what comes down to us is the conventional wisdom of, oh, the braggart or the guy silenced by Parkinson's and the brilliant boxer. But there's wisdom in early, you know, we, we had the luxury because of PBS of working on this for years and years. So you, you dive deep down into the archives and you find this soft-spoken and wise beyond his ears, 21-year-old or 22-year-old talking. You know, when he's, when the Supreme Court on a technicality uh, releases him from his jail sentence, his five-year jail sentence, somebody sticks a microphone in his face and says, what do you think about the system? And like, this is Muhammad Ali. He gets to gloat and jump up and down and said, I told you, I predicted I was right. He doesn't. He says, I don't know how many people are going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who else is going to be denied 
equality and injustice. And so he's ranging back across the last 350 years of treatment of black people on this continent. He's thinking about Emmett Till, and he's ranging ahead to all that none of us will know precisely what happened, names that are now etched in our memory, like Rodney King and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and thousands, I'm sorry to say, more. And so here is this young man in a moment of victory realizing he's got a much larger responsibility. And people took notice of that when he lost to Frazier after treating Frazier so badly in the lead up to the fight of the century. He's soft-spoken. He's saying defeat comes to everybody. Everybody loses a job, loses somebody they love, loses a title. I have to show people that these things can happen and that you can come back from it. And he does. It's just... Uh, I mean, you know, when you think about the third Frazier fight, I said this to somebody the other day, um, my, my little gal has made me watch in the last couple of weeks at night all the Harry Potter movies. And um, there's, there, there's nothing more dramatic in the final battle scene except the third <laughs> Ollie Frazier fight. I mean, you don't need orcs, you don't need flying monsters and wraiths and ghosts and whatever they're called, um, you know, dormenters, uh, you know, whatever it is. You've got, you've got one of the great, I mean, it, if not the greatest fight that I've ever seen. I mean, I, I think the, the rumble in the jungle is just spectacular for its just, just genius, but just the sheer horribleness of that third fight, as close to death, Ali said, as, as he had ever come. You, you mentioned that America sort of wants a hero to be pure, and we have this unfortunate expectation of binary. But I wonder if there were any unique challenges covering the evolution of Ali's views on race in particular, as somebody who was pro-segregation, who bragged about meeting with the Ku Klux Klan, and now is venerated as this secular saint with this incredibly enlightened take. It, I, I think it does almost a disservice to him that your film was very um, useful in illuminating this I progress think, he made. I, I think that's a, a, an important part of, of um, Brendan's story that we're trying to tell, which is just, we are, you know, we... We have a kind of conventional wisdom about people, and the conventional wisdom about Muhammad Ali is that he's just this, the greatest boxer ever, and this, you know, perfect avatar of love, which is true, you know, it's true, he was a prophet of love. But it, but the story is more interesting and more complicated, and it's really important that you trust to those complications. It doesn't in any way diminish the final feelings it actually makes them more accessible because they're familiar to us. This is Greek, you know, mythology in a way, and all of the Greek mythologies are stories for us mere mortals. They're writ really large and gigantic shape and the way Muhammad Ali lived. The rest of us don't live that way. But, but, but the aspects of the story are true, that we're sometimes late to these things, that we have failings. And I think it was so interesting at the end that he himself began to really genuinely, authentically um, try to atone. You know, he felt there was, as Jonathan Icke said, a tallying angel that was going to add up all the good and the bad, and that he had used and fit his religion to whatever he wanted, he, he, you know, with, particularly with women, but also I think the way he treated George Frazier, and it was incredibly, um, I think, 
apologetic and and also his abandonment of Malcolm X. He said, you know, Malcolm was right about so many things. Um, this is hard for any of us to do, but to do it on the kind of grand scale that Muhammad Ali did allows us. He's, he, he's in a separatist religious sect, and he's got an interview with Bud Collins that is just radioactive, in which he says, yeah, I admired George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama. He said, you know, people don't want you to move into their neighborhood. Why should you do that? And we who are following or believing in a kind of mainstream civil rights movement, which is Christian and Southern and devoted to integration and the kind of beautiful nonviolence that Martin Luther King and John Lewis um, exhibited, just amazing courage in the face of this. This comes off as kind of tone deaf and uninformed. And he, I think, grows out of that tone deafness and becomes a huge um, symbol and inspiration for liberation on all the continents. It's, it's a, to me, it's a powerful story, but you can't leave out all of that. That's, that's, that's part of the story. The, the hero's failings are, make the hero that much greater in the end if they can escape the specific gravity of those failings. Uh, Ali died on my birthday, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I got a strange phone call from somebody saying, can you just put together an obituary for a website on the fly. You have an hour to do it. And so I had to very quickly try to come up with some summation as a lead. And the best that I could do was saying, what Shakespeare is to language, Muhammad Ali is to sports. And at the same time, what I want to ask you is, if that's, if that's something that you would agree with, in spirit at least, um, is he as much you know, that the accident of boxing offers deliverance to this man, to billions of people to be embraced the way he was. But at the same time, this vehicle of boxing has made him one of the, the biggest examples of a cautionary tale. Yes, yes. Uh, so I wonder what it was like straddling those two poles a little bit with the role that boxing played in projecting him to the world the way it did. I, I have in our main editing room here a, um, a neon sign in lowercase that says it's complicated. And I think, <laughs> I think for all of us writers and journalists and filmmakers, when a story works or a scene works, you don't want to mess with it. And what I've tried to practice for almost 50 years is just the willingness to say, I've learned some new information, let me complicate this thing that's going on and nothing could be more complicated than the kinds of things you've described. Uh, at the end of the film, Rashida pinches her fingers together, his daughter, and says, boxing was just this much. And you realize that in a way, he's been telling you this all along. And the little things like, I, I, I don't need to box anymore. What would you do? And he goes, I don't know, but I know I'm here for a reason. He says very early on when, when the, the Nation of Islam is trying to reel him in, they don't approve of sports, it's frivolous, it's not that, and they're trying to figure out how to tolerate their own contradiction of adoring this person who's a great you know, salesman, a great recruiter uh, for them. Um, and yeah, I think the boxing thing, you know, it, it has the most devastating undertow in that it delivers him 
the disease that's going to imprison him. Let me digress for one second. I mean, you know, I'm always digressing. Um, Michael J. Fox, who has Parkinson's, said something that blew my mind, and I had the opportunity the other day just to tell him how much I admired it. This was maybe 25, 30 years ago. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. Mm. <laughs> and that is just, just stunning to me. And in a way, for this voluble, loud, articulate, funny, poetry spewing, controversial guy for whom language was everything the way it was for William Shakespeare, and I will take your, your analogy and say yes. Um, he couldn't really speak until he couldn't really speak. The last couple of decades of his life, from the mid-90s to um, 2016 when he died, he is even more powerful and reaching so many people. Maybe we're not aware of it because in American media, he's out of it, he's done, his career's over, he's the greatest, but we're moving on. Heavyweight championship, I couldn't name the heavyweight championship to save my life, champion right now to save my life. We don't, I don't care. I've, I've made 12 hours of boxing films, first four hours on Jack Johnson called Unforgivable Blackness, and now Muhammad Ali um, with Sarah and Dave, and, and that, you know, it's not about boxing, right? It's about something and someone and the themes that swirl around that something and someone that transcend boxing that's meaningful. At the same time, we did not shirk our responsibility to deliver you what it's like to be a boxer. And that's where Michael Bent is helpful and where the extraordinary amount of footage that's available of him, of him boxing, you know, from the Terrell fight, What's My Name, to the liniment in his eyes in the first Liston fight, to the improbable drop of Liston in the second fight, to all three Frasers, to, you know, Foreman, to both Spinks, to, you know, and then some of the gems that Michael Bent pointed out, like the Big Cat Williams fight at the Astrodome, which are just kind of masterful shows. As he says, it's Barishnikov, it's Picasso, it's Miles Davis. I mean, I just thought, you know, add your William Shakespeare right to that list of, uh, of, of superlatives in their, in their genre. Um, I, I wondered, I, I was thinking as I, I watched this over a weekend, and I was thinking the last time I've had this experience of this many hours and feeling <laughs> grossed um, was Ezra Edelman's Made in America mm -hmm. with another incredibly important, um, complicated figure of sports, but become something very different where sports become very minor to the significance of OJ Simpson. But it was the quality, there's a similar quality of ostrenity where I thought, what the hell else do I need to learn about O.J. Simpson? I, mean, I was 15 or 16 during that trial. I watched it all the time. Um, well, it turned out everything. Yeah. I mean, about 98% of that film. So I wondered if Edelman, the scope of that film and how it caught people off guard with somebody that they thought they knew so intimately in any way informed this project? Not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, but it's this, I've been doing this for 50 years, right? Big, deep dives into things in which sometimes the topics are familiar and you go, what more do I need to learn about the Second World War 
or what do I need to know about you know this or the uh, baseball? You know, we know we know this, um, but that's that's the part of it. It's I, I think we forget that the facts of a story aren't as important as how you tell the story, and that's the that's what stories are. Stories are the editing of human experience, so they share with uh, with each other with their brethren. Um, a certain familiarity with facts, but after that, it's it's different. You know, if if you are going to hand uh, Steven Spielberg a novel and he takes it and and does it, and hand somebody else, you know, you're going to get a different film. And so I think it's for us, as I said, you know, really good films on on uh, Muhammad Ali, and. Um, we could conceivably say that would be enough, but we just really felt that there was much to talk about in the in the very things we're talking about about undertow and complication and and the sort of how, which is important to all stories. It's really American too. I mean, you know, it, at my dinner party, I got Abraham Lincoln and I've got Ida B. Wells and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Louis Armstrong and Muhammad Ali. I mean, just you know. I just finished the film on Benjamin Franklin. Maybe we invite him. He's pretty funny at dinner, you know. And and Franklin Roosevelt probably wouldn't reveal very much, but you know, he's one of the great politicians of all times. That's a pretty good dinner party. But all of them have basic internal contradictions to them, you know. And uh, all of them are kind of Whitman-esque. You know, Whitman gave us permission to contain, as he said, multitudes. To do I contradict myself? I contradict myself. And I think. That's the beauty of stories. If you're looking for the sanitized Madison Avenue of things, just listen to the new Texas law about history. You know, slavery can be a good thing, right? You know, no. And it's so funny coming from Texas where their religion is football and every Friday night a high school coach or every Saturday afternoon a football coach say, man, we stunk. We were terrible on defense today. Thank God our, our, our offense was up to it. Our, we stunk on all things, special teams, offense, defense. And so you tell the truth of what happened and the idea is you get better. But now you don't tell the truth and the fact is you get worse. Right. And that, and so to me, it's complicated. You know, the big difference, O.J. Simpson's a murderer, you know, and he's a very important sports figure um, in one way, but he transcends that story because he's a murderer. And um, Muhammad Ali is, is not. And I, I'm not saying I, I wouldn't have done something on, or, or still wouldn't do something on O.J. Simpson, but I, I think it's an entirely different kind of story. But it is, as you point out, filled with the same kind of contradictions. And I, I love the dissonance of things like that, 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 just, that just force you back on yourself. Well, and I remember Edelman in an interview made a very interesting, highly disturbing comment to say, if you look at the prominent African-American civil rights um, advocates with athletes, and then OJ just completely abstaining from any involvement. Um, it's OJ's legacy that in many ways has permeated our culture much more in insidious ways than a lot of these advocates did. And I, think, I, I, I wouldn't agree. I would understand why he would say that in the promotion of a film, and that's very important to say, look, I, I want you to pay attention to this. But there's no way that... Um, uh, um, O.J. Simpson 
supplants in any way Dr. King or Malcolm X or Muhammad Ali or Jackie Robinson, the subject of a film I've done. And I would say that even in their brief moments where they were extinguished very quickly, you know, Carlos and Smith and Kurt Flood taking on the plantation system of the reserve clause, but he's a black man, so no, it's going to be the white guys, Messerschmitt and McNally are going to do that, um, and even Colin Kaepernick. They endure in a much more way. Yes, this was a big pop cultural moment, and we all stopped and we watched the car chase and we watched the improbability, and it divided us in along racial lines based on the outcome of the criminal trial. Um, but to me, you know, there's a quote I just found the other day that that Dr. King wrote that I'd love to just read to you right now because I think it's germane to why. Sure. O.J. Simpson's never said anything that wasn't self-serving in his life, even before. I used to look at him on The Tonight Show, and I go, man, he's angry, right? I mean, he, he, he was angry, and this was not, you know, I didn't care about it. He made me feel uncomfortable. Dr. King said, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Hmm. This is what Muhammad Ali understood. This is what Dr. King understood. I think Malcolm X began to understand at the end of his life this this mutuality, the network of mutuality and this single garment of destiny. You know, O.J. Simpson is a phenomenal topic. That's a really great film. But, you know, we don't, we don't hang on to life preservers like that quote. That quote, when I found, I just wept. I just said, you know, this is what I do. I, I'm, I'm interested in that inescapable network of mutuality. You know, I don't. I don't disagree with what you're saying. I, I think where he and he was he was saying it with incredible amounts of despair, lamenting the superficiality and shallowness and how tabloid culture became the dominant culture, that sort of yeah. thing. And I just hadn't thought of it in that context of the legacy of this guy that seemed quite trivial to me as a kid. You know, he's on the naked gun or whatever, and he had been a great football player, but he, he, I didn't grow up with him. Um, but I, 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 I grew up with him as a football player and then as a college football player and then as a Buffalo Bill and throughout his career and just was, you know, he was as good as they came. And sure. yeah, I, I think, you know, we can lament the tabloid stuff. But at the end of the day, we're also drawn to other things. Um, you know, since the, the trial and before that film, Yes We Can meant something to a majority of Americans in a deep and powerful way. Other, other stuff has permeated. And then, of course, we've descended into the same kind of O.J. Simpson-like hell um, with politicians who are in utterly self-serving. And so this is a human drama uh, of which there is a kind of war going on between and within uh, the, these, these tensions between the, the base and the noble. And, and, you know, that's the battle we're in, you know, whether you're in the better angels of our nature or you're into 
the kind of um, opposite of that, which is, you know, a kind of death, a kind of imprisonment, the absence of freedom. I mean, Ali, all his life, talked about freedom, wanting it, needing it. And, and you can see this as a human being trying to escape the specific gravity of all of it, the pettiness and the, and the wrongness of, of his beliefs about, uh, about some things, obviously escaping the, 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 the prison of race, of uh, being a black person in this country, um, and, and transcending the sport that also would, through the many thousands of blows he had to learn to take in order to continue to succeed, would deliver him this horrific um, disease. So it, to me, this is such a, a, a good story and it doesn't diminish the fact, I mean, you know, is Iago less of a great character, you know? I mean, you just have, O.J. Simpson's just a different kind of uh, ending point, you know? Um, if you'll indulge me, just one last contrast oh, between the two. Um, O.J. Simpson, it was pointed out in that film, Ad Nauseam, transcended race on a corporate level in terms of being able to brand so many things so successfully. It's like the first time America didn't care about a black man hmm. with Hertz and all of these products that he endorsed. One of the things that completely fascinates me about Muhammad Ali is, as you said, he died the most beloved man in the world with billions loving him. There is no successful branding of no. Muhammad Ali that seems no. to exist. And, and the no. best explanation I've ever heard is that you can't brand a spirit. You but can't. I wondered, could you, you elaborate you on that? No, that's you. You said it so well. Brandon. <laughs> I mean, you can't brand love, right? You yeah. can't do it except Robert Indiana, the, the, the painter, right? With his, you know, two, <laughs> two letters on top of that. Um, there's a great, great shot in the early uh, 60s while he's training for the Liston fight of the Beatles invasion. The Beatles show up in the Fifth Street gym and he punches a fake photograph. It looks like the Beatles are going down like dominoes. But it occurred to me as I look at that, these are five guys who understood what it was all about. And they spent their entire lives trying to do that. And it's best taken from a line of Paul McCartney's, but it could be of any of them, including Muhammad Ali. The love you take is equal to the love you make. You know, when he endorsed stuff, it was to make money and survive between bouts and when he was banned from boxing. This was not important to him. And he understood the devil's bargain of that kind of, um, you know, what that what those commercial endorsements do, right, to the soul. And he was interested in the soul's survival. And the, the medium of that is love. And that's what he became about it. So to me, the great thing is that, as you brought up, it's a boxer. You know, this is the most brutal and elemental sport there is. And yet what comes out of it is this just, you know, someone who David Remnick says in the opening of the film, reminding us of how divisive he was, that at the end, he comes to us almost like a religious figure, he says, almost like the Buddha. And that's, you know, that's exactly right. You know, who else? Uh, you know, and when Rashida says, you know, it could have been, uh, boxing was this much, it implies he could have been something else. I mean, he could have been a simple carpenter, right? And we know what history has of simple carpenters. So, you know, branding, isn't really part of that. It's way, way down below the frame when you're up, 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 
that high, that high. I'm, you know, I'm not surprised at all that it's, that we're not, you know, we don't have a Muhammad Ali candy bar or Muhammad Ali sneakers, right? And we can say, oh, these are just accidents of when he came out. If he were alive now, there'd be Nike deals and maybe, but then he probably wouldn't be the person that we made the film about. Mm. Do you view Muhammad Ali on some level? I've, I've spent a fair bit of time with a lot of world champion boxers. What they all have in common is they're addicts. And we don't like to see them as addicts. We say they're disciplined, they're devoted. They could not do anything else. I, I remember Errol Morris said to me, Franz Kafka could not be somebody else if he wanted to be. You don't right. tell these people, their parents didn't tell them, you need to be reading and working and, and be, they couldn't stop. Um, did you come away with that feeling about this guy? Yeah, very much so, and yet he transcended that because he did do so many other things. He was a spokesman for other things that matter. He was a spokesman for his people. He was a spokesman for people everywhere. He was a spokesman for humanity. He was actually in the business of understanding the improbable equation that love multiplies. That's what it is. Now, at the same time, a mortal, he is addicted to the spotlight and addicted to boxing and addicted to the paydays because he's one of the most generous people on the planet and he can't keep, money does not stay in his pocket for very long. He's giving it away and he is remarkable in that. And so there is that sadness at the athlete who doesn't know when to hang it up. You know, we kind of admire the people who have that wherewithal to say, oops, I'm done, you know, and, and, and do it before they're pathetic, right? And we also have the example before, uh, uh, in front of us, including Muhammad Ali, of way too many fights. Never should have gotten in the ring with Leon Spinks. Never should have gotten into the ring with Leon Spinks again or Bobek or all the others that, they, you know, in that, in that horrible meltdown where his daughters are saying, Daddy, please don't fight anymore and and so yeah that's that that is it's an irresistible siren call to the spotlight and what i mean we're talking about the ring we're talking about a huge arena in which only thing is lit up are two men mostly now women but two men fighting it out as jerry eisenberg said about the third fight like i like on an iceberg, fighting not for the WBA championship, not for the WBC, not for the championship for the world, but the championship of each other. And each of the other is is Ahab's white whale to them. I mean, that's obviously what Jerry wrote in his column way back when, but to access it for us on film was so generous of this guy who followed him from the beginning, who understood him in a way that Dave Kindred and Robert Lipside and other people who accompanied him all the way across the arc of his spectacular career. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a drug. That's an addiction, of course. And, and when you're really good at it, the best at it, it's really hard to let go, you know. I mean, are we going to have to watch Tom Brady uh, have, you know, two really horrific seasons? Or, you know, is he going to understand, you know, at some point I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave before I get hurt or I'm going to leave before I look not like the best quarterback ever, right? I mean, it's just these are all really, really interesting things you know you think of Willie Mays as a as a New York and San Francisco giant but he doesn't end his career there 
You think of, you know, Babe Ruth, he, everyone knows he starts off with the Boston Red Sox, but he's a Yankee, but he doesn't end his career with the Yankees. They're, I mean, people just can't give up. People who are the best at what they do can't give up. Some people know that moment, and Muhammad Ali didn't, and that's a great tension in the film, and, and I think that addiction is good to point out, and I think it's also wonderful that he had so many other skills that he could fall back on. And, and, and let's just not forget, I'll, I've said it before, this is a spiritual journey. This is a story about faith that's imperfect and improbable, but sincere as it moves along. And so what sustains him, those last, what to us on the outside seems dreadful two decades, is in fact a very powerful and meaningful uh, time for him just as the disease is limiting this beautiful, the most beautiful specimen, you know, human specimen of athletic perfection and, and silencing one of the great talkers of all times. Um, there's, there's tragedy in that and there's also um, an amazing kind of um, irresistibility to that. And I think at the end of the day, I, I felt, we felt, Sarah Burns and David McMahon felt, irresistibly drawn to him and obligated then to tell as complete a story as we possibly could. It's not definitive. Someone's going to come along with new footage, a different angle, different idea, and, and do something. But, but this is comprehensive. You know, it's, it's soup to nuts. It's birth to death. And, and we're, I'm very happy that we've devoted the number of years we have to this and, and thrilled with the reaction that we're getting uh, from folks. Last question, Ken. Um, I know that your mother died when you were 11, and I read a profile of you where you said your father-in-law, who was a psychologist, said that your whole career was an attempt to make the dead come alive. I wondered how true that was at this stage in your career today. It is. Uh, you know, if my mother hadn't died, I'd, I wouldn't be before you. It's something I think about every single day. And I realized as I was, I'm 68 now, as I was 39 or 40, that I had never been able to be present on the day she died. The day was always sort of up ahead and then it was receding. And my late father-in-law, very brilliant psychologist said, well, I bet you blew out your candles on your birthday cake as a kid wishing she'd come back. And I go, how do you know? And then he listed a couple of other things that I did. Uh, which I thought were personal and superstitious to me. And he said, look what you do for a living. You wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think you really want to wake up? And it, it could be interpreted as dime store psychology, but it's coming from a professional psychologist, so we can um, uh, avoid duck that. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in the power of past lives and the kind of resurrection of the main thing. I mean... All of my films have been about love and about longing and absence and loss. All of them. All of them. Brooklyn Bridge, The Shakers, Civil War, all of that stuff. That, that's what it's about. Thank you so much for your time today. This was, I really appreciate it. I did too. Thank you so much. Good way to start the day of, of, of interviews uh, with a thoughtful one. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Likewise. Likewise. Take care. Best of luck with the film. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. 
Thanks for listening.